Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hey listeners, hope y'all are doing well. Happy May. I'm currently on vacation. I am spending time with my aunt and cousins up in Colorado. My youngest cousin just graduated high school. It was cold and wet up here yesterday, but um, some of my cousins and I still drove up to Garden of the Gods and walked around the town there, walked around the garden just a wee bit. That was fun. Um... Gorgeous, perfect weather today. It would be perfect for the party. I'm I'm just really glad that it didn't end up snowing yesterday. It wasn't that cold. Um, anyways, because I'm not at home, I'm recording in the guest room, and I don't have my microphone with me, so I hope the sound quality isn't too bad for y'all. This is Topic 2, Fairyland Park, from Series 7, Amusement Parks. If you enjoy this episode, then please go back and listen to Topic 1, that is Electric Park. And listen all the way to the end of the podcast for announcements. Let's begin. Alright, so to be honest, I struggled a little bit for a while to find details about the park's history. Mostly everything I read was like the same summary paragraph, right? Um, But I did finally find some good details for you. And side note, actually before we begin, I just found this literally yesterday. Otherwise, I totally would have put this in with topic one. But I found an article called A Century of Screams, The History of the Roller Coaster uh, on PBS.org. And it was really cool. So according to this article, roller coasters originated in St. Petersburg, Russia, when folks would slide down icy, uh, yeah, I said that right, icy hills. Um, And it was given a boost in popularity by Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia, in the mid-1700s. Guess she enjoyed it, and she added little twinkly lights to her sled or whatever. Um, So, we have approximately 300-something year history of roller coasters. That's way longer than I ever would have guessed. Quote, The next leap forward came when a French traveler beheld this odd national pastime and imported it to his homeland. Adapting the ice slide to a milder climate, the French soon learned to erect a track with a groove running down the middle. A bench with wheels was fitted into the groove, and the Parisians went facing sideways. The article also says that the name roller coaster came from this French pastime, or possibly, quote, Stephen E. Jackson and Byron B. Floyd, two coaster inventors from Harville, Massachusetts, who worked in the early 1800s, end quote. It then goes on to trace the slow evolution of roller coaster machinery, specifically within America. I'm telling you, utterly fascinating. Quote, by the 1920s, the scream machine was evoking more screams than ever. America boasted as many as 15,000, sorry, 1,500 roller coasters, the highest of which stood 138 feet high, the fastest of which plummeted to earth at 61 miles per hour, end quote. 
The article calls the that time, the early 1900s there, the golden age of roller coasters, or rather the wooden age. <laughs> Clever little play on words. I like it. So Fairyland Park resided at Prospect and East 75th Street from 1923 to 1977. So it's right there at prime golden age territory. Originally, the plan was to build near Spool Park, but apparently citizens protested that choice, and so it got moved to Prospect. It was owned by the Brancato family. Uh, we'll dig into them in a minute, but like Electric Park, Fairyland Park was also segregated until 1964. But that just means that black folks couldn't be a visitor. They couldn't visit for fun. They were totally allowed to come and play to entertain. Uh, for example, in the early 1930s, Thamen Hayes Rockets and the Benny Moten Orchestra frequently played at the park. Both are famous jazz bands from Kansas City. Uh, before desegregation, Fairyland did have one day a year, usually around Labor Day, where they would let non-white folks visit the park. I think it was called like Negro Day or something. Gross. And in 1936, they increased it to six days. Whoopee! Still racist. I did not see anything about black folks visiting Electric Park as guests. Just FYI. Um, also, Fairyland closed each winter, so it's only open basically from Memorial to Labor Day. And again, I don't remember seeing any specific mention of opening versus closing in EP. Fairyland, however, is also 80 acres, so it was way bigger than Electric Park. And y'all, it cost a million dollars to build in 1923. That's over $17.5 today. Alright, so brief history for you of the Brancato family. A Mr. Salvatore, aka Sam Brancato, was born in Italy on May 28, 1878. He died in Kansas City on April 5, 1935 age 56. He is the one most often named as the owner of Fairyland Park. However, several sources also simply say Brincato family. So this park, like EP, also owned by immigrant families. Honestly, I've, I've seen a lot of similarities between the two. Sam's wife was Maria Brincato, born December 7th, 1880, died in Kansas City, August 31st, 1950, age 69. Sam immigrated to America in 1896 when he was 18. He was reportedly a blacksmith in Italy and, you know, first came to Ellis Island, New York, and then traveled west. When he settled in Kansas City, he opened up a grocery store, did really well, and quickly got into real estate. Sam and Maria had two children, according to findagrave.com, Susie, who was born in 1903, and Matteo, who was born in 1908. Um, obviously they have more children than that because some of my sources also named a son, Mario. The Marincato family has owned a very successful catering business six uh, since 1968. There we go. Mario is the CEO, his son Andrew is the president, and Mario's brother Nathan is VP of Sales and Marketing. Back to Fairyland. So the park resided at the end of a streetcar line, again, just like EP, and only cost a nickel to get in. Uh, although another source did say a dime, I imagine that it started as a nickel and then went up in price. Quote, to bring people in, 
Riot owners relied on the wider phenomenon of amusement parks, and these in turn were boosted by the streetcar industry. My apologies. Street railway industry. Street railways paid a flat monthly rate for their power, whether they were busy or not. And with a six-day work week on their hands, it behooved them to encourage ridership on Sundays. This problem was solved many times over by setting up an amusement park at the last stop on the line. Indeed, trolley parks were such a sound investment that, for a time, they were nearly ubiquitous. The proliferation of trolley parks, or rather the close proximity of so many trolleys to so many parks, may well have inspired the flurry of roller coasters that were, for all intents and purposes, trains in their own right. End quote. So that comes from that history of roller coasters PBS article. And it makes so much sense. I mean, we have two of them here in Kansas City. Coney Island's the same. And, you know, it it takes up a lot of space. So usually it's kind of on the edge of town. How do you get people to get there? Trolley. Fairyland had three roller coasters, a dance hall, which could seat 6,000, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, damn, a petting zoo, a drive-in theater. Um, I did not get a date that I remember for when that was added, but it was not there in the 1920s. A eight-story Ferris wheel, and of course more, a funhouse, concessions, pony rides, penny arcade. Skyrocket was a wooden roller coaster, and the Wildcat was made of metal. Skyrocket was designed by Henry Miller and built by Harry Baker. It opened in 1923 and closed in 1966 after a summer windstorm destroyed part of the ride. Wildcat, which... Great name for a roller coaster. So is Skyrocket. Wildcat operated from 1967 to 1977. It had a chain lift hill, which is something the Mamba at Worlds of Fun also has. It's that part at the beginning where it's slowly pulling you up the chain and you can hear it click, click, click. The ride totaled 2 minutes and 19 seconds, was 2,653 feet long. For my European listeners, that's, oh, sorry, actually, for anyone who's not American, <laughs> that's uh, 808.6344 meters. It was 75 feet at its tallest, or 22.86 meters, and had a 60-foot drop, or 800, and, whoa, no, 18.288 meter drop. It was designed by Ariel Vazin, V-A-S-Z-I-N, and Edward Leese, L-E-I-S. No information on the third roller coaster or even a name. I only found that it opened in 1949. According to one of my sources, quote, In those days, amusement parks were operated differently than today's Worlds of Fun or Disneyland. The rides had different owners who paid to rent space at the park, and there were carnival acts, such as a man buried alive or a woman who rode a horse that dived into a pool of water, end quote. So the rides had different owners. Totally new information as I was researching this. I couldn't find verification of that anywhere else, but it makes sense to me. I didn't see anything online that refuted uh, or confirmed it, but I am leaning towards factual. Also, um, that PBS article I keep mentioning is a great resource. Um, it named several different types like um not the mamba specifically right but like the chain the the way in which the roller coaster is is designed mentioned several different 
dozen designs like that and all the people who operated them. And, of course, they would sell their designs to different parks. So, anyways, this just makes sense to me. Quote, after purchasing another park named Kittyland, which was located at 85th and Warren L., the rides were moved here and many younger attendees were welcomed. End quote. Um, so, here is Fairyland. I am not covering the history of Kittyland in this series, in case you're wondering. I feel like I read somewhere that Kittyland was a really popular thing in multiple cities. Either that or it's just a really commonly used name because I googled Kittyland and I got hits for several amusement parks in multiple cities. And when I was young, and we actually had a Kittyland in Leavenworth on Spruce. The T-Rex that was at the park's entrance is still there, except that it's a bowling alley now. I remember when, you know, they tore down and we heard they were going to put a bowling alley in there. I think I was in high school. I don't remember precisely. But I do remember I was like, you know what? Since the dino is still there, they need to make this dino themed. Just really lean into it. It would be perfect. Um, the bowling balls could be eyeballs or dino eggs. And the pins could be teeth. Just, it would have been a great marketing strategy, right? They did not do that. Missed opportunity on their part. Okay, all right, we're getting back on track now, I promise. Um, according to a post in the Fairyland Park Facebook page, supposedly, quote, MGM filmed Fairyland's dancers for a motion picture, end quote. And I don't know what that original post writer source is, but it would be really cool if that was true. There was also a ride called a Teeter Dip, which joined the park in 1927, and a ride called the Heyday, and one called the Mill Shoot. No details on either of those. They struggled in, uh, for a bit in the 1930s with the Great Depression and all. Quote, in 1935, the park was sold under foreclosure for $20,000 to the Fairyland Realty Company to satisfy mortgage default. End quote. So, it took them a million to build, and 10, 12 years later, it's being sold for 20000 I mean, woo, you took a major hit there. Quote, in 1939, oh, I love this story, by the way, two Catholic priests drove to Fairyland and removed their clerical collars. Okay, that's your first mistake, obviously. Quote, they headed inside to test their skills at the shooting gallery where contestants aimed guns at metal ducks and other targets. Murphy, Father John Murphy, was holding the gun when it accidentally discharged striking King, that's Monsignor George King, his fellow priest, in the spine. King suffered temporary paralysis and permanent disability, end quote. Oh boy, what a story. Um, and this was with a, quote, soft bullet. It's probably made of rubber. Gun safety, man. Guns are not toys. The skyrocket was struck by a roller coaster in 1942. That's crazy. Uh, then, of course, we have World War II. And according to an article in the Casey Star from 1999, 15,000 citizens celebrated the end of World War II at the park in 1945. That's cool. There was a large fire at the dance hall in June 1943. No one died, um, but the article doesn't say if there were injuries or not. It does say that most of the park was destroyed, but they were able to rebuild really quickly and they reopened by July 4th, 1943. So just a couple of weeks later. There was another fire in 1947 that destroyed four buildings and a third of the skyrocket, so 
Skyrocket is suffering. <laughs> Damages totaled $235,000. And there were more fires in 1938, 1953, 1957, and 1963. Oh boy, they are not practicing fire safety. And, you know, the Electric Park had a few fires. Several of the historic theaters we covered in the previous series had fires. I really feel like I need to cover Kansas City's fire department history very soon to find out what is going on here. I didn't find anything on the park in the 1950s, so I hope that means business was good for them. Um, details on the 60s and 70s were sparse as well. In the early 1960s, the Kansas City chapter of the NAACP Youth Council protested the park's continued segregation, and two years later, it was finally desegregated. Um, at, but at the time, they were also protesting the Red Cross's decision to hold a CPR slash rescue, how to like how to rescue um, training event at the park's swimming pool while it was still segregated. There were other pools in the Casey area that they could have gone to that were desegregated already. Also sometime in the 1960s, someone drowned in the pool. Um, not necessarily died, because you can drown without dying. Um, but this detail is from LMD, who was sharing her memory of the event in that Facebook group on um, Fairland Park. So, uh, she didn't say drowned and died. She didn't say drowned but not died. She just said drowned. Also, it's a personal memory. No one else was like, oh yeah, I remember that too. Take it with a grain of salt. Sorry. Um, extensive storm damage in the winter of 77. Atop the income lost from the rivalry with the newly opened Worlds of Fun resulted in the park's closure in 77. One source reported that this particular storm actually bent the Ferris wheel in half. And I don't know their source for that information. Everyone said, you know, the storm was bad, but only this one source said it bent the Ferris wheel in half. And I mean, that's like epic twister the movie level storm, right? So there has to be record of it somewhere. But when I went to look up info on this storm, all I found, and actually I found a really cool website that was like, here's every major weather event in Missouri for the last hundred years. I found a bad flood in September of 77 and that January of 87, or perhaps I got that backwards and it was 78, now I'm not sure, um, was hella cold, but I didn't see anything about a storm so bad that it would have been to Ferris wheel in half. Overall, the park experienced, quote, two bankruptcies, at least six fires, none of which were covered by insurance, windstorms, an accidental shooting, changes in ownership, Days and days of news coverage about the civil rights protests in the 1960s, and finally the competition of Worlds of Fun, end quote, and thus their demise. Um, I forgot to mention when I uh, was talking about desegregation, the only reason that they were like, okay, fine, we'll desegregate, is actually because some white folks were also protesting, and they got arrested, and then all the other white folks were like, why you can't arrest them? Oh, it's fine to arrest the brown people and the black people, but not the white folks. Yeah, so also desegregated for a racist reason, if that makes sense. It's really, really stupid. So glad we don't have to deal with that bullshit anymore. 
I mean, racism, of course, but not segregation, at least. Okay, so according to Marlboro East Neighborhood website, by the time the park closed in 77, admission price had actually risen from a nickel to a quarter. The Wildcat roller coaster moved from Fairyland to Frontier City in Oklahoma City in 1991. And this is really cool. Um, it's actually kind of funny. So I drive past this park all the time. And I didn't realize that there was a KC connection until I started researching for this. When I was a kid, we used to drive to Norman, Oklahoma, like once a year to visit a family friend. And for the past six years, I've been driving to Hera to visit family like twice a year. So yeah, I've never visited the park, but it's nice. I can wave to it and say hi. The last remnants of Fairyland Park were finally disposed of in 2004. According to an article from December 1999, an organization planned to build a woman's shelter at the site. I'm not sure if that ever happened or not. If it did, it's not there now. In 2002, Alpha Point, which was a rehabilitation and advocacy organization for the blind and visually impaired, built a facility on part of the property. Some of the land is also now occupied by Page Point, which is a townhome complex built by the Kansas City Neighborhood Alliance. And the Ferry, um, nope, sorry, let me try that again. The Missouri Police Department has a campus where Fairyland used to be. There we go. There is, as I mentioned a couple times, a Facebook group all about Fairyland. Um, I 100% scrolled through there looking for some golden nuggets. Didn't find too much. Mostly it was, oh yeah, I miss it. Here's a photo. I do have a, another little nugget for you, actually. At the start of 2023, January to March, the Coterie Theater's show was only one day a year. Quote, two stories told in tandem. In the early 1960s in Kansas City, Rose James used smarts and determination to try to defeat the racial segregation policy that allowed blacks to visit Fairyland Park only one day a year. Years later, Rose's granddaughter, Ella, uses her talent and grandmother's spirit to shine a light on an injustice at her school. Rosanella tap into, quote, black girl magic, end quote, and empowerment to bring about meaningful change to their lives, end quote. Legit did not hear about this until April or else I totally would have gone to see the show. Okay, here's final bit for you. Someone from the Picado family is writing a book on the history of Fairyland. Not sure who, not sure when it's coming, but very excited to read it because right now there are no books on Fairyland, or Electric Park, or even Worlds is Fun, which is the next topic in the series. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me today as we explore this piece of Kansas City's history. Please tune in next month for the final topic of the series, which will be Worlds of Fun. Um, that's probably going to be a two-parter, possibly three. I really hope I can get fitted in in two, because I still want to take time off this summer. Sources, I uh, got a little bit from the Missouri Valley, I did not spell the right, yeah I did, Missouri Valley Special Collection. Um, so the article in the KC Star um, came from that, that has some good details. But the rest of it was all online sources. Um, the Facebook group, which I've mentioned, kcqr.org was really good, Flatland was good. A little bit from Clio.com, some from kchistory.org rcbd.com was good. That's the roller coaster database. Uh, PBS.com and findagrave.com. If you can, I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. 
You can give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as $1 a month. Once you sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show, you will be charged that day and then on the first of every following month. If you become a patron, you get three things. One, an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. A shout-out on every episode and social media post. So thank you, Bjorn, Joan, and Thomas for your continued support. You also get access to exclusive bonus content featuring local historians, archivists, and museum experts. If you simply donate, you will receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you do not get access to the bonus content or anything from the merchandise store. Additionally, if you donate on coffee, 1% automatically goes to fight climate change, which is something I'm very passionate about. Right now, one of my Patreon episodes is um, yeah, currently temporarily available to the general audience, so I hope you listen to it while you have a chance. Um, that is KC Rainbow Tour. It is a conversation with Joel Barrett, who is the creator of a new uh, self-driving queer history tour of Kansas City. Uh, there is a launch event on Saturday, June 3rd at the Kansas City Museum from 2 to 4. It's $10, but the event sounds really cool. The uh, tour sounds super awesome. So the conversation we have is all about how the, he did that, why. Um, that is only going to be available until mid-June. If you cannot support me monetarily, which is totally cool, you can still support me by following and subscribing to my social media pages. That's Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube. I'm Homegrown KC on all of them. Please rate and review me wherever you listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts. You can visit my website for additional information on each topic. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And I've got some new content I'm putting up there. You can also sign up for my newsletter there. It's only once a month, uh, usually the first Saturday of the month. You'll get an email that says, hey, here's what's new, here's what's going on, and what's upcoming. Great way to stay current with the podcast. Um, In the future, I think I may do some giveaways through the newsletter. And those of you who have signed up, thank you. Appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the website itself so that if... And when I post new content, you'll get an alert. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of my socials. Merchandise is www.zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore kc underscore store. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of every episode. And to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. And thank you for listening. Cheers. Seem to get you off my